hello, this is Melissa, Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and I'm on a long-distance call with a man I haven't seen since I graduated from high school. I knew him as John Green. His book has him as J. Franklin Green, and his book came to me in a very strange way. My husband was shopping for Christmas chocolates at Candycraft, a Gilderland institution, and a woman in the long line was talking about this wonderful new book, A Baby Boomer's History of Gilderland, and so, she was particularly talking about the passages on Politos, and so many people in the line were interested. She went out to her car came back in with the book, and that's when I thought, this man has captured something. So, welcome, John. Thank you, Melissa. Um, You piqued my curiosity. Who would that nameless woman be? Do you remember? I don't. I don't know. It was just this coincidence of, you know, being in line and hearing this, and so many people so interested. Because what this book does, it... It credits, you know, the traditional history of Gilderland that the former town historian Alice Bagley put together with Mary Ellen Johnson, who does our history column and we greatly respect. But it says there's a part of history and it isolates that period from the 1950s to the 1980s when, and I true confession here, <laughs> I was in the sixth grade class of Mr. Nicholas with John. So we were, we were classmates through the same era together. And it's really a very, very personal look, not like you think of a history book. What, what made you decide to put this together? Well, that's a rather long story, but I'll keep it short. It all started um, some years back when Vicki Mead, well, I'm sure you remember. I do. She was a class officer. Turned me on to a Facebook private page called You Know You're From Gilderland When. So I asked to join, and I saw these great little stories and pictures and stuff. And, of course, I had a lot. I'm a pack rat, so I have a lot of my own photographs and history and memory and all that sort of thing. And that kind of prompted me to start the website upon which the book is uh, based. Uh, and the websites are the same name. I host it through uh, one of my uh, uh, web hosting companies. And at some point, I said, hey, like a couple of other of my websites are quite personal, um, this thing is going to expire when I do. Uh, simply when I, when I croak, uh, I'll stop paying the uh, web hosting fee and it'll just go away. So I thought it'd be a good idea to put it into book format that can sit on a shelf and be handed down, even to people who are not, and people have uh, actually purchased this book for their children to hand in and say, see, this is how I grew up. And that's where the idea started from. And then I used that Facebook page to uh, ask for submissions uh, from from people there, and also personal friends of mine in, in Gilderland that I'm friends on Facebook with. And I wound up with 34 people, uh, or more actually, contributing photographs, stories, anecdotes. Some people, uh, Bob Batzinger, for example, I don't know if you knew Bob or not. I did, uh, he yes. Has, he has not even received his book yet because he's living in, I think, Thailand. And like, apparently the postage is outrageous to get the book there. But he contributed three fairly long stories to it. Uh, 
another woman who actually didn't even graduate with us, she dropped out. Uh, she submitted numerous um, anecdotes, which were really, really great. Her uh, that? linguistics, that would be Doreen Reinemann. Oh, she I still, love I think she the was piece. In Knox now. Yeah, but, I uh, love the piece. But her linguistic skills were challenged. Uh, but her stories were pretty darn interesting. Oh, and, it was heartfelt. Uh, she said that her father was the man that collected rubbish, and people made fun of her, but it was good, honorable work. And she wrote about Polito, too, and how he had come, yes. I think, she attended to Tommy's her funeral, funeral because Tommy yeah. attended her dad's funeral. Yeah, um, yeah. And, Very uh, hard in fact, she lived, she lived right down the street from me. And, you know, I knew her and her sister, Bonnie, and she had two brothers also. Um, so it was, it was really great to get all these little submissions. Uh, Ina Parlo, you might remember, uh, submitted a very heartwarming thing about Grulich's supermarket. And the book was just a heck of a lot of fun to write and compile. The, um, the biggest challenge, Melissa, was photographs. As I mentioned in the book, I mean, we all have memories. Some of us better, some of us not so much. Uh, Vicky, for example, said, I don't remember anything from my, you know, back then, but a lot of people like me, um, and my nickname is a storehouse of useless information. Uh, <laughs> I remember a lot, <clears throat> but getting photographs was very, very difficult. Uh, because this because is, we, as you wrote in your book, it's pre-digital, pre-when everybody had a, you know, a camera on their phone. So how did you get the photographs? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, photo, digital photographs today are, are so numerous. So there must be billions of them out there. But you know, when you went to uh, Wilroy for uh, dinner, I mean, you didn't take a picture of the drive-in or frosty ice cream or, or uh, Carvel across the street or, God forbid, Tommy Polito's tavern. I was very fortunate to get that backside photograph from, and you'll forgive me, I can't remember her name. Uh, her current name. It was Carolyn Unser, who works for the oh, town. Um, yeah. Like well, this photo, just so people know, is on the front of the book. Um, it's the backside of Polito's with cars lined up. And then the main cover of the book, is it French's Mill? Is that what you chose for the, no, for the old railroad Hollow. crossing? French's Hollow. That's French's Hollow. It's, it's, yeah, okay. I chose that because it was probably the most pristine, iconic image of Gilderland that I could uh, conjure up, and I had plenty. Of, in fact, that photograph I personally took uh, in 2017 on a road trip I took. So it's it, a great um, photograph. It yeah. was suitable. The Polito's well, strikes... photograph graces my first book, actually, which is semi-fictional, and it's entitled Tommy Polito's Tavern. So you devoted an entire book to Polito's. I hadn't realized that, because that's one of the richest par- portions of this book, I think. Just You have like a memory of New Year's Eve double dating, I think, with Paul Gardner, and you and guys Debbie thought Gold you'd hang you out there. Knew. Yeah, um, and yes. Nancy George, yeah, and you guys thought you'd hang out there until you figured out something better to do, and there you were all night. <laughs> Is, yeah, Tommy, just, Tommy was a great man. I, I the, when he put the food out, we were all trying to figure out what the heck he was doing. And when yeah. he turned off the jukebox and said, dig in, it's on the house. Happy New Year. I was like, come on. Um, the new book, um, I got a lot of submissions for the other tavern in town, which, of course, was Dan Milwaukee's, uh The Village Drummer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, as I mentioned in the book, Dan and Tommy were not 
competitors at heart. Dan wrote me a quite a nice note saying that they were they were friends. And sometimes when Dan ran out of something, he'd call Tommy, uh, hey, you got to save some extra whatevers, and and vice versa. And people, some people were very loyal to the drummer, some people were very loyal to Polito's, or as Terry Miltner noted, uh, some guys were frequent flyers at both places. <laughs> well, what's neat about the book for somebody that still lives here, I mean, you're in Arizona, so when you come back, it must be kind of like, you know, you can see the difference. But when you're here and the landscape's just evolving and these things are getting torn down or replaced, it it just hits you and you see it all at once the way it was, frozen in time. You know, it just makes you really realize how how different it is. Um, tell us a little about it. You coined the term in your book, Burb Rural, <laughs> which, which I like. And just for people that weren't here in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, just kind of, if you can, describe for our listeners, what is Burb Rural? What? Well, the town was kind of split. Uh, and as they say in the book, uh, you know, McCownville, Westmere, they were more grown up because they were close to Albany, Fort Hunter, had some spillover from uh, Rotterdam. But the western portion of the town um, was very rural. There were farms and cows and things. And, in fact, um, I lived on the, uh, actually, I believe it was called, I guess, uh, Stewart's Corners now, in a trailer court that is still there. I woke up every morning to the sound of roosters crowing. <laughs> and there was a pig farm down the way that if the wind wasn't blowing in the right direction. So it was it was a town kind of on the cusp of becoming the, suburban um, megalopolis that it is today. Um, as a side note, uh, I was back in Gilderland in uh, June of 2017, and boy, it, it changed even since I'd been there in 2011 yeah. when my father was on the, uh, on the verge of passing away. Uh, I think you and I spoke about that uh, one time uh, after he died. Yeah. We did. I had just recently, before he died, run into him. <laughs> he was so very and he, proud And of he you. told me all about it. Actually, it wasn't that recent. It had been a couple of years before. Well, um, time flies. But he was so very proud of you. Well, he was also, you know, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. He was a gabber. He was a raconteur. He'd go to the market to pick up, uh, you know, a loaf of bread, do some cold cuts, and it would take him two hours. <laughs> And I only, only took him five minutes to get there. That's when he ran at you. And he, he called me up and told me all about, hey, you know, I was talking to an old classmate of yours, and it took me 15 minutes to find out who he was talking to, meaning you. Um, but the Burb Rural, I think, fit the town uh, very much. Yeah. And, yeah, and now it's all Burb and no rural. Yeah. So Pretty much. There's some things that are, are different. I, I'll tell you a quick anecdote, which I don't think is in the book. Uh, it's in the Tommy Polito's book. In 2011, uh, and in fact, Tommy Polito's was based on that trip, an afternoon drive I took in 2011. I stopped into the trailer court where I lived from 1957 to 1984 when I moved to Rotterdam for a while. And uh, I ran into this old guy. And actually, he's not an old guy. He's actually a couple years younger than me. But to me, he looked like an old guy. And he asked me, hey, you want to stop in for a beer? And well, I haven't had a drink in 30 years. But I, I started talking to the guy. And he started pontificating about the history of the trailer court. And, you know, he said, well, I've lived here for 10 years. Let me tell you about this court. 
So I politely listened. And then when he was done, I said, he said, well, how long were you here? I said, from 1957 to 1984. I think his jaw darn near dropped off of his face. Uh, and then I told him about the history of the trade report, which um, went back even before I was there. Um, man named uh, Robert Andrews owned a trailer court and the florist uh, out in front of him, if you remember those greenhouses that used to stick out. There. I do. Yes, I do. And uh, the court was really beautiful at the time. It's kind of a, uh, I won't use the Trumpism expression that's so popular in the news today, but it's kind of that way now. Um, no, I remember that, it had flowers and it was very, uh, very well tended Oh, the court was uh, geraniums and petunias and and, uh, pansies, and you know he kept it quite nice. And the residents kept it quite. It's it was it was a whole different world back then. Yeah, but what made it a different world? Because what oozes through this book is the sense of community, the sense of you know people really knowing each other. And I don't know if that's so much. I remember my own childhood, you know, I was off Willow Street, and we hung out in the woods together with the neighborhood kids, and everything wasn't so planned as it is for kids now. Everything wasn't so orchestrated, and we weren't, you know, one family car. You weren't, you know, driven to lessons here and rehearsals there. I think you're telling something that's very significant uh, and very true. Uh, there were different times in all the ways you just described, and more. Uh, people were more trusting back then. People were also more severe. Uh, when I got into mischief, which wasn't infrequently, um, people were called us to task on this. You know, they'd grab you by the arm and say, hey, I'm going to tell your father about this. You know, Or they would tell you, hey, stop doing that, you dog little kid. People are afraid to do that today for fear of lawsuits and silliness, or they're just not paying attention. Well, and you had that one little anecdote there in sixth grade, which I never knew about. You were always like a star student, but you had Mr. Nicholas. <laughs> you apparently told him something he thought was rude. We were, we were discussing crystals, and he was uh, opining scientifically that all crystals of a certain type are identical. And the stupid argumentative side of me I just couldn't agree with that. Well, they got to be something different. Then I went on and on and on. And uh, he said, John, just be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about. And I blurted out, well, neither do you. And I blurted it out quite loudly. And that's when he invited me to go into the hallway. And uh, today, the poor guy would have been, oh, a parent would have sued him. He would have been fired, thrown in jail. And he didn't harm me. He really didn't. He got my attention firmly, and he became my favorite elementary school teacher of all time. We actually went back to visit him when we had a day off from uh, junior high school the following year. Uh, He was a great man, uh, as were a lot of teachers back then. Teachers had the, parents had the teachers back, not the other way around. And I think that was significant. Uh, Teachers were supported by parents, little Johnny screw it up, uh, they heard about it, and they they didn't argue with the teacher about, oh, my little Johnny, he's so wonderful. You know, you, you got punished for disobeying the teacher or doing something stupid in school, which I did a lot, by the way. Thank you for the uh, 
good student thing because I think you were being sarcastic <laughs> and true. No, I thought you were, you were one of these very smart people. Well, so tell us about your life after Gilderland. How did, how did you end up in Arizona? Well, that's a fairly short story. Um, we moved to Rotterdam after uh, I married the mother of my children who just passed away seven years ago. And we lived in Rotterdam until 1999. But my business had become extremely mobile. And what is your business? I was a graphic designer, um, mm-hmm. primarily packages and, uh, and food and beverage package design. In fact, my premier first uh, client was Adirondack Beverages over in Scotia. Mm-hmm. And I had an office on Catlin Street in Schenectady, and I realized that I hadn't been to the plant in two and a half years. There was no need. And mm-hmm. my business was branching out. I, heck, I had clients in China and in Italy and in Europe and all over the country primarily. And I got sick of New York State weather and some other New York State things that I won't get into, like taxes and blah, blah, blah. So we decided to move. Uh, my late wife wanted to move to the southeast. I, we had come out here on a uh, weekend, a uh, week-long anniversary trip uh, in uh, 84, and so we sold the house and we moved to Phoenix. I'd never been here. That was an adventure. And yeah. to me in the lamppost, I don't regret one millisecond of uh, living here in Arizona. You you don't have a yes, podcast. You're basking in 70 degrees, degrees right? right? And, and here, here we, we are. are. I, I know we're below zero, zero but I don't know. I'm going to I'm gonna have to move in a minute because I'm actually sitting in the sun and my, my legs are in the sun. I'm getting hot. Uh-huh. But, uh, so uh-huh. um, so I, I consider so- myself now almost a native Arizona. I dress that way and walk that way. I, uh, but yet, these roots in Gilderland must still really matter to you. It sounds like you're still in touch with classmates and still, um, you know, crystallizing your youth. That's also been the miracle uh, of the Internet and Facebook in general. Uh, a lot of people like to post pictures of what they had for lunch. They want to go into big political rants, and that's their right. But I found it great to um, connect with people that I otherwise wouldn't connect with. And I'll give you another example. She's also another classmate, uh, Janeth Watson. Oh, boo, yeah. She's now Janeth Watson Mason. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were discussing something on Facebook one day. She was. Um, she asked me if Joan Hartley was my neighbor in the trailer court. And uh, I said, yeah, she lived right next door. Joan was a little bit, well, shy would be an understatement. And uh, her mother was a little bit odd, which is also an understatement. And Janet opined on, on Facebook that she felt bad that she recognized that in Joan. Joan was in some of the classes. And that she hadn't reached out to her back then and at least tried to befriend her. That led to a three-hour telephone conversation one day between her and I. And I, she found Joan's telephone number in Las Vegas. But she didn't have the nerve to call her. I'll call anybody. So I called up Joan, and I told her that, uh, you know, Janet was thinking about you, and she was feeling better. And I got the lowdown from Joan, and what a wonderful life she's had. And what's she doing in Vegas? Uh, she's semi-retired now, but she works for Public Works as a, um, I can't 
testing you're testing my aged memory now. no that's okay uh, but she lived I happily ever after high, that's she, nice she was a highway department engineering assistant whatever the heck oh. that means so <laughs> she was a public servant so what you're saying is the internet for you has not just kept old friendships going but sort of led to new pathways and finding people and understanding them well, I'll tell you two quick anecdotes about Facebook. Uh, on this cross-country trip, I, uh, I had my laptop with me, and I was on Facebook, and I announced to everybody that I would be at Jumpin' Jacks. I know you're aware of where Jumpin' Jacks is. On yeah, uh, such and such a date at, at 12 o'clock noon. And if anybody would like to join me there, please come. A Facebook friend who I never met face-to-face, Jim Rulison, class of 67, I think, uh, he showed up. You know, he, in fact, he parked his motorcycle right behind my car because I was the only car in the parking lot with an Arizona license plate. So he figured that must be John. Ah, this must be him. And um, on my way back, I met uh, a fellow author, uh, Carmen Baca, who I mentioned in a lot of my Facebook posts and my website address in Las Vegas, New Mexico. We had become great friends and supporters of each other's endeavors uh, on Facebook. That's how I think Facebook is most effectively used. So, and uh, yeah. I opine about Facebook in a lot of my novels as well. So, tell us about your novels. What are they about? Well, I'm kind of all over the lot. One thing you will not find there is any kind of sword and sorcery, fantasy, imaginary baloney, and uh, and you won't find any romance novels in the in the classic sense. You know, the rippling abs and the half-dressed women and all that stuff. <laughs> Although some of my novels do have some pretty heavy romance in there, but only in the justice sense. I've written some uh, apocalyptic novels um, or dystopian, whatever you want to call them. Uh, several of my novels, including my first novel, started in Gilderland, New York. Surprise, surprise. No, I was going to ask if the sense of place pervaded your novels as well. So how, well, just before we go well, on about them, how novel. do people, how would they get these novels that they wanted? I'm assuming they're self-published. Are they through a website or through? 52 copies of A Baby Boomer's History of Gilliland, New York, just sold through Ingram Print. Ingram Print is a big distributor to bookstores and things like Barnes & Noble and Abe and, and uh, in fact, I've forgotten. And I'm happy to see yeah. that. Well, so you were telling us about your novels, and I just wanted to let people know how to get them, but you were going to say you've done an apocalyptic one, and just, like, where do these come from, like, deep in your brain? Well, most of my novels are not something I just pull out of my hat. Um, Okay. My two most recent novels, one is Roadside 66, is uh, kind of a supernatural mystery, but it was based on that trip. Uh, back east. It was a 32-day road trip, and I spent nine days of it in Gilderland. And French's Hollow in Gilderland is featured, uh, and Schenectady and Scotia are featured in three, three or four chapters. And a lot of my characters are based on real people. Um, there's a character in Pennsylvania that the main character, Earl Garnett, meets who sounds an awful lot like Paul Gardner, if you read it, if you know him. <laughs> And some of the other things evolve. Um, I'm not a big planner when it comes to the novels. Uh, I'll sketch things out and then write by the seat of my pants. In fact, Roadside 66, I had no idea how to end it. 
to be tongue-in-cheek and whatever. And I actually even included one of my Facebook friends, uh, Carmen Parker, who I just mentioned, as a character as herself in one of the last chapters of that book. As the author, Earl Garnett, wants to know what, what's happening with his crazy laptop he's got and what she thinks. Um, she tells him tongue-in-cheek, well, a laptop writes better than you do. Uh, so there's some humor there. Uh, my latest novel, which is A uh, House in the Closet, is based on my childhood experiences and a grandfather I never knew. Now, these are all fictionalized venues. Um, one you might uh, enjoy is, uh, I think it's like the third book I wrote, and I since revised it. It's called The Immortal Sergeant Bachman, and it is historical fiction with a fictional framing device front and back, but it's based on the true stories of my father from 1945 to 1952 that I discovered in his uh, journal, which came to me uh, after he died. Some of the stories I'd never heard before. Isn't that fascinating? After, Even though he was such a raconteur, after he died, you discovered untold stories in his journal. Yes, and some of them uh, I hadn't heard. I thought I'd heard all of his damn army stories because my kids have heard all of his army stories. We thought. We thought. Yeah. Now, there was one, and I had to fictionalize the ending because in his journal he talked about a Air Force colonel who approached him in Okinawa and said, you're coming with us on a mission because you're a, you've got a, you're a, you have a reputation of a man who knows how to keep his mouth shut. And I guess he did know how to keep his mouth shut because he never told anybody about this. He wound up in Manchuria in 1952, stringing wire for some secret mission. And that's all I found. I had to fictionalize what it was all about because that's all he even said in his journal. Um, and there was Doesn't that make you curious? Maybe do a nonfiction story on that one. Stringing wire in Manchuria. Well... I had to be fictional about it because I, there's no way of knowing what the true story was. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of true stories, including one that I only heard from my brother shortly before my father's death. And my father was never a religious man in the strict sense of the word. And he was he was old and he wasn't afraid of dying, but he was afraid of going to hell. And I said, what do you mean? Well, Dad told me a story about what he did on the Czech border one day, and he's afraid he's going to go to hell because of that. And um, the crux of the story was that he discovered he was in the constabulary police Germany for quite a while. And the whole story is in the book. But he was concerned because he discovered four American GIs raping a Czech woman on the border in her home. And he knew darn well what was going to happen to her after these guys were done. And, of course, they were drunk and they were belligerent. And when he couldn't get them to desist and they came after him, he killed them all. Notice the silence there? I don't know if you caught what I said. He killed them all. Uh, yeah, no, it's so so stunning. I, I am silent. So this is a true story? The, uh, the crux of the thing is he was, afraid, he was afraid he was going to hell for that. And all I was thinking is he needed a medal for that. And yeah. I was just talking about that today with a friend of mine, and she considered it, because she was involved with the military, that military people are the ambassador of America to other countries. And this woman, whoever she was, 
lived because he acted. And if she had children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews and whatnot, they all owed it to that man who shot four of his own soldiers to save her life. Now, if that doesn't deserve a medal in some institution, I don't know what does. So, at any rate, the, the book is based on that. I've written some other books. I've written some children's books. Uh, the Wind and the Junipers, one of my favorites is uh, Lola Sam and the Jackalope, which is more of a novella. Kind of in the line of... Uh, tell us about one of the children's... Over, Just tell us uh, one of the children's stories. Up, depending on reading level. And it's about tell my us. dog. And oh. uh, her, her buddy Sam up at my property. And, and, and it's told from her point of view. The main, uh, She's the main character. Her and Sam. And she tells the and story. I'm only, the referred to, I'm only referred to as daddy who drives the truck and does various other things. So, so to answer your question, obviously I've taken a long time doing it. I write about a lot of different topics. Yeah, you sure do. All of them are based in, in some way or shape or fashion, reality, real experiences, real people, real dilemmas. Um, and, of course, there's a little commentary in there. I'm not too kind to Facebook and social media in some ways. Um, and, and certainly not kind to some other institutions in my thinking. But this is really not the venue for that. Read some of the books. They're all available online. All the reviews, and, and uh, they're all at uh, www.jgreenbooks.com. Well, just to... We're closing out our half hour, and I'd like to return at the end of this to the beginning. Um, who should read this? Who, who, who's, who would benefit from reading A Baby Boomer's History of Gilderland? I would say anybody who lived through the times, and perhaps even their children, uh, who had no idea how those times were. And like I said before, people, uh, Chip Carpenter, uh, he bought five of them. Hmm. Because he wanted, because his relatives were in there, and he wanted to, to, to in the Carpenter family. You remember Joe Carpenter? I do. Um, in fact, he's in Ahwatukee right now, which is about forty-five minutes south there. But um, anybody who lived those times, anybody who wants to remember those times, and what I'd like to do, and here's where I'm going to put you on the spot. I've had a lot of people clamoring for a sequel. And like I said, um, some of the um, most difficult things to get a hold of are photographic archives. And I'm pretty sure the Altamont Enterprise and or the town has those. Donnie Albright said he would help, but he, Donnie never got around to it. I ran at him in June, but uh, he's, oh, I'll get around to it. And that's kind of how people are today. That's okay. But And I've had a lot of people, Sharon Mastriani, for example, whose family owned Dutch Mill Nursery, she doesn't do Facebook, but I got at her through the Gillen reunion website. She says, well, i got to go through my mom's shoeboxes, and she never got around to it. And the other challenge was getting people to submit the stories in formats that I could use with their permission. Mm-hmm. They, would, they would tend to just blurt things out on the uh, Gilderland uh, Facebook page. And then I'd have to say, oh, do I have your permission to use this? Can you elaborate? Can you, even though I had instructions, please email these two, and I have my email address there. Um, I, I think there are a few people left on the planet that still do email. Um, I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh-huh. you're not the for other... nothing, kiddo, but you're my age. 
<laughs> the um, the way you can look at pictures from that year from our newspaper is easy. It's online. We gave all the permission to the Gilderland Public Library, and they have all of our newspapers available electronically, you know, from 1884 right through that whole period you're talking about up until the 90s. So, um, And hearkening back to an earlier statement you made, what were the difference between the times? Now, of yeah. course, we were younger, but they were also slower times. I don't remember people frantically dashing around like they do today. I remember watching old Mr. Gade, Peter Gade's uh, grandfather, you know, just moseying across Route 20 to the farm. He didn't even look either way to see if there was traffic coming. He, he, he kind of walked like Poop Deck Pappy or, or uh, um, what's his name? Grandpappy from Amos and the McCoys. You know, his elbows are up, you know, and stuff. Mm-hmm. Things seemed to be slower then. We weren't so distracted and harried by so many things. Television, internet, job, busy, busy, running children to baseball games. My dad never ran me to a baseball game. I either hitchhiked or grabbed a ride with Coach Field or walked or something. Yeah, the term multitasking hadn't been invented, that's for sure. Well, not only the term, but the actuality of it hadn't been invented at that time. Yeah, yeah. You know, people, uh, and you had, but of course we were younger, you know. Remember when your parents said, well, you got to wait a half an hour and then we'll do that. Well, half an hour stretched out into eternity. In a minute means tomorrow, and tomorrow means someday, and I'll do it when I'm finished is the farthest away. Yes, it's true. Yeah. It well, I will leave you, with, I'll leave you with one thought here, which I... Yes. Life okay. is like toilet paper. How and so? This is where you say, how come? Yes. And then it's where I answer and say, life is like toilet paper because it goes faster the closer you are to the end of the roll. <laughs> Well, with that thought, we'll end our conversation. Thank you, John Green.